Good morning and welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. This morning, as we come to talk to you and think about today, we're going to have on our lineup today, we're going to talk to Father Anthony Egan this morning, a little bit about what's going on in the world today. Um, we're picking up a little bit about the recent terrorist attacks and just other things that may be going on that affect our faith, affect how we think about the world, that challenge us in, in how we are really called to follow Christ in the world. We'll also be talking to Dr. Maria Fram Arp, who is um, a, a, an Anglican priest and also has a doctorate in theology, and whose specialization is looking at the role of women in Pentecostal churches in South Africa. And so we'll be talking to her just a little bit about how Pentecostal churches have been women, working with women and how they, they kind of understand the nature of women and Christ in the world. Blessed are you who stand beside us as we enter new ventures, for our failures will be outweighed by the times we surprise ourselves and you. Blessed are those who forget my disability of the body and see the shape of my soul and strength of my mind. Blessed are those who love me just as I am without wondering what I might have been like. The Muscular Dystrophy Foundation. Your support means hope. You can contact us on www.mdsa.org.za. Or telephone number 011-472-9703 for further information. Finance is a very sensitive and at times a complicated topic. I'm Lisecha Madiba, your Radio Veritas resident financial wellness coach from Citadel. You can find us at citadel.co.za. Join me every Friday on Changing Gear at 5 o'clock as we unpack finance and help you to get financially well. That's finance every Friday at 5 o'clock with Lisecha Madiba. Good morning, Anthony. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thanks, Francis. Good. Um, Anthony, I thought we would start by talking, I know for a lot of Catholics, the recent death of a priest in France has been quite disturbing. And the idea of someone killing a priest while at Mass is, is really speaks into the, Catholic, into the heart of Catholicity and the heart of our soul, if you like. And I just was pondering this and wondering what, you, what your thoughts on this were. Well, I mean, murders at Mass have, have happened before in the past. Um, I mean, the most famous murder during Mass was that of the Archbishop Romero in El Salvador by a death squad in 1980. And it did um, then, I think, have quite a a dramatic symbolic effect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that certainly may well be a tipping point for some people, uh, particularly in the last you know, month or so. There have been, what, about 100 or 200 people killed in terrorist attacks around the, around the world. I mean, from everywhere as far afield as West Africa to, uh, to Pakistan to Brussels and all the rest. So it's it's certainly it's just it's in a sense one attack among many um, that may be associated with IS and uh, or similar kind of groups. Um, it's almost a problem because you know you're never sure whether you know an attack like that is an actual terrorist attack or some sort of lunatic who is using the sort of environment and and using the tactics that they've seen um, happening in other terrorist events 
uh, to their own advantage. Mm. Certainly. I mean, and there does already seem to be a, a real sense of confusion from the attackers' family and friends that that they may or may not have been associated with ISIS or they may have wanted to be or it doesn't yeah. seem clear. Or they may just have been a disturbed person. Yeah. I think, I think the thing is it brings out a certain environment, a certain mindset. And so I think with the sort of regular sort of violent attacks um, happening around Europe, which are most unusual for the Europeans. I mean, it's a very unusual thing. I mean, you look, for example, the murder rates in, in most of Europe compared to the rest of the world. It's, it's quite, um, you know, it's tiny in comparison. I think what you have to look at and say is, okay, um, there is something much nastier going on here. And perhaps the fact that it seems like, you know, Europe is in flames, although it's probably a massive exaggeration to say that. Um, nevertheless, in a certain mindset, uh, people are actually saying, you know, well, no, if they can do it, why can't I? And, and so it could well lead to kind of copycatting. Mm -hmm. So there's something that's, that's kind of disturbed and distressed the the normal prohibitions that would function in that society, and 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 so that's allowing mm. a real sense of of people who yeah. may be tempted to kill others to feel that they can, that they may they may the consequences may not be as dire, yeah. although so far they have all died. Um, it, it creates a kind of environment, you know, the kind of mindset, mm. and so it almost creates a culture of terrorism. Mm. I'm really struck by, you know, I was also thinking the last the last priest that I could think of who had been murdered at Mass was, of course, Blessed Archbishop Romero. And I was kind of struck by the difference between the two stories, that here we have a mm. priest who's an elderly priest, relatively unknown, saying a very small Mass on a, sun, on a Tuesday morning. You know, it's, it's, uh, he, he himself is not a, a significant figure. I presume mm. what's, what seems to have been significant for the person who targeted him is that he's a Catholic priest, but who mm. he was was irrelevant. And that that's quite strikingly different if one thinks about Blessed Archbishop Romero, where it was very clearly he himself that was the target. And I just wondered, you know, it's, it's a good moment to remember Romero and remember what he was talking about as well. And I know he's, you're a fan of his, so I thought you might yes. want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at somebody like Romero, he was a uh, great you know, champion of human rights and a promoter of democracy, and uh, it was largely through that work, uh, trying to in a sense, live out the gospel and the church's social teaching, particularly the, uh, the call that, you know, action on behalf of justice is integral to our faith of the statement justice in the world in 1971. Uh, for that reason, he was, he was killed, precisely, because he stood up for human rights. Um, now, this guy, I mean, you know, I honestly, I don't even remember what the guy's name is. So he's an sort of obscure person who just happened to be saying mass at the time. Yeah. I mean, I said I don't think there was any plan to target him at all. You know, it, be, um, it just happened that this these characters rocked up, and decided, well, we must uh, we, we will, we will attack this church. We'll we'll attack that particular mass. And you know, how how far they even planned that? That's also a question that. That, that you know, we really won't know, will we? 
know. I mean, well, it, it seems unlikely that we'll know very much about it, that it's very much mm. a, a, a sense of, um, of the unknown, of, of things happening in an unknown way. And that seems to resonate with some of the other attacks that have happened in, in Europe, certainly in Germany, that there's kind of this confusion about who's done this and why they've done this and what the motivations are, whether they're crimes of passion, whether they're crimes of terrorism, or whether they're just people who are psychologically disturbed. So there's, there's yeah. that kind of sense. So, yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting one, because in the past, where you had clearly defined political affiliations, so, for example, you, know, you were known to be a member of the baden meinhof gang, to use a German example, mm -hmm. or of the Red Brigades in Italy. Uh, well, in this case, you're never sure. Now, is this person um, a member of an IS cell? Is he an individual operator? Is he aligned to IS? Because remember, most of these groups, they don't actually have that kind of formalized structure that other groups have had in the past, you know, where you'd be a member of, say, Fatah or, or the PLO or whatever group you want to talk about, uh, and you were operating under the sort of discipline and orders of an organization. Um, these guys seem to simply say, you know, I define myself as a member of IS uh, because I share their vision or whatever it is. And then, in a sense, the nature of the organization is you know, that they then carry on and do whatever. Now, are they a member of IS or are they not? Mm -hmm. I mean, on one level, I mean, it's very hard even to define membership of these groups. Because there's this loose affiliation, if you buy into some or all of their principles, or you feel like you can act on their behalf, you, you, there's yeah. a sense of being able. That, that also obviously makes it difficult to negotiate with or to, or to monitor, because there isn't a clear structure. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real nightmare. I mean, a lot of guerrilla movements have the structural, structure of selves, you know, where each group may have its own underground cell, which no one else may actually know about. Mm. So it's conceivable that I might be a member of a, of a particular cell group in an organization, and I might need you. You're in the same organization, but I don't actually know that you're a member of the same organization because you're in a different cell. But do you still, we still have some kind of coordination somewhere up in the, you know, higher up in the, in the structure of the organization. Whereas in this case, this is a real kind of, um, almost kind of free market anarchy uh, model of, of organizing a, a sort of guerrilla movement. Mm. It's very complicated. And as you say, very hard to, to actually access for whatever purposes, you know, for combating or negotiation on yeah. the part of those who oppose them. Yeah. So I'm wondering what challenge this, this kind of rise of terrorism around us poses to us as Christians at the moment and what are the kind of ethical issues that we should be considering that we should be playing through our own <coughs> moral right. lenses what should we be thinking about as we look at the world today as we look at the violence around us what are what are the questions that come that, that for you would be important questions that we should be asking ourselves well I mean it, it forces us to confront where we stand on the issue of violence and I think it also forces us to realize that perhaps the uh, line between violence and nonviolence is very complicated, um, both in terms of, you know, the question of the legitimacy of the use of force, 
whether it's ever legitimate. Mm-hmm. Now, I think most people would accept some level that it's on certain circumstances that, you know, force is legitimate. And certainly in mainstream uh, Christian uh, theology for the last thousand years, more or less, uh, there has been this acceptance that sometimes you have to use force. Then the question is how and, and why? Because, you know, in a sense, one of the principles that that we insist upon in the, in the tradition is non-competent immunity. But how do you define that non-competent immunity? And what happens when uh, the opposition are not following those principles? Which, by the way, are Islamic principles as well. They're identical moral principles in in Islamic understandings of force and war uh, to ourselves. So that is a very real problem, because we're caught between, oh, do we just sit and suffer? Mm-hmm. Do we become a church of martyrdom suffering? Um, and risk extinction? And I think that's a very, very real issue. And if you look at the dropping numbers of Christians, for example, in Middle Eastern countries, where they've been experiencing the kind of murder of priests and murder of Christian leaders for decades, uh, it's a real possibility. Otherwise, if you do say we have to retaliate, we have to use force against a group like IS, a group of terrorist organization of some kind, uh, what are the legitimate means that we can and should use to deal with the problem? Uh, and that's leads us into all kinds of moral battles over the correct use of, of violence and the question, to use the military term, of collateral damage when you deal with a, uh, a conflict like this. And that's really, I mean, if I, if I think back to, you know, times like under apartheid, to people who agonized about whether an armed struggle was the right way to go, whether that was a Christian response or whether they needed to... Um, kind of affirm a sense of pacifism, of suffering, of uh, following the Prince of Peace. I'm kind of I'm quite struck that every time there is some kind of conflict like this, individuals have to wrestle in their own souls with with how yeah. they're going to choose between the between those choices. I'm also struck that you know at the beginning of this year, Pope Francis put out that that very powerful message uh, around dialogue about around um, interfaith dialogue and the need for interfaith dialogue. It seems to me to have been very much speaking into the issues of the time, that, that too easily we are alienated across lines of faith and their call for a kind of common, ordinary people reaching out, discovering each other, and in that way, hopefully, making yeah. this kind of extremism less likely. Yeah, I think there's a lot, lot to be said about that. Uh, moving across faith, uh, reaching out. Now, in most cases, I think most people, most faiths, um, one can do that mm-hmm. uh, on, on a human level. I mean, I was talking to a, a Christian from the Middle East recently, and he said his best friend was a Shia Muslim. Uh, and so that is not uncommon. But, you see, personal friendship is one thing, but then when you get to some organizations and groups who will play this to the hilt so that, you know, your, your friendship with someone of the other faith may be seen as a betrayal of your own faith. And I think we've even encountered this among Christians, among Catholics even, 
if you seem to be too close to people who are not Catholic, uh, or you seem to work closely, say, with Protestants or with Muslims or Jews or atheists, you're immediately regarded as something of a, you know, a folks for riot, to use a, mm-hmm. an expression from, you know, mm-hmm. Afrikaner nationalism. And, and that's a real problem, because the, on human level, we can carry on these things. But somewhere along the line, we have to move beyond the ordinary one-to-one, and we have to see how our religious traditions help or hinder us between religious traditions. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just between the theologians, because, you know, you can get, you know, theologians from the Gregorian in Rome and others are in, in Cairo sitting down and having very good conversations, and they have no impact you know, what, what we do see sometimes, occasionally, was uh, if you think about the, the wonderful uh, Arab Spring in Egypt at the beginning, where you had Christian, secular, and Muslim people standing together against a dictatorship. Mm. Now, that was, that was a remarkable moment. But now what happens is that, you know, obviously political interests mobilizing through religious language will do precisely this kind of thing and will break up those kinds of alliances. Because obviously what happens is you want to gain political power, you're using religion as your political mobilization form, and so you, you obviously, you know, first you, first you collaborate in order to get to a certain point, but when, the, when that collaborating point stops, you then uh, can just simply say, well, now's our time to turn on the people we were working with. Mm. And that's a real problem, because it's very hard, you know, on a personal level, to maintain those friendships if you're being pushed by your community and your religious community if it's been taken over by political fanaticism, uh, whether Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Jewish or whatever, to sort of maintain that integrity and that commitment as an individual, you feel like you're being rolled over on. Mm. So what you're really saying is that for those who are caught in the midst of such conflicts, it is an ongoing battle in order to try and remain, have a sense of integrity and be able to be generous, be open, be yeah. engaged across those boundaries if, if those become the boundaries of conflict. Very difficult, I think, to maintain that, that, that uh position as an individual mm, as an individual well in that there is a, a lot for us to be thinking about and for those of us who aren't in those positions of conflict as most South Africans aren't I mean we we are we are not in a, a country that's divided by faith in that way we're in a country that's dealing with other crises um, but not particularly that one I think it also just is helpful to be thinking through what's going on in the rest of the world and just being aware because we are part of a, a global world and we are we are, in a way, connected to each other. Anthony, what is going on in the background? It sounds like babies crying. I hear noises too. I don't know what's, what's happening on that phone. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I'm sitting on the veranda and I heard some, some birds making a noise out there. That was okay, so it's bird song. Birds, but I don't, think, I don't think that was it. Right. I think it may just be something on the mind. Never mind. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much for chatting to us this morning. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you very much, Francis. Take care. Okay. So.
You're listening to Francis Correa, and I've just been talking to Anthony Egan. We've been talking a little bit about the terrorism attacks that have been going on recently, about the various deaths, and just thinking through some of the consequences for us as Catholics, as Christians, as we attempt to follow Christ in the world. Anthony was talking a little bit about Archbishop Romero, who, of course, is the the very famous um, Archbishop who was shot while saying Mass by a death squad. And I thought, in the light of what we'd been talking about, it might be worth just reading something that he wrote to you, just to kind of give you a sense of, of some of the responses as Christians we may make. So this is what Archbishop Romero wrote in his book, The Violence of Love. We have never preached violence except the violence of love, which left Christ nailed to a cross the violence that we must each do to ourselves to overcome our selfishness and such cruel inequalities among us. The violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work. So on that note, we're going to turn to some advertising. Here are the seven spiritual works of mercy to counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish sinners. Comfort the afflicted, forgive offences, bear patiently those who do us ill, pray for the living and the dead. The Holy Father's prayer intention for the month of July is that indigenous peoples whose identity and very existence are threatened will be shown due respect. The intention for evangelization is that the Church in Latin America and the Caribbean, by means of her mission to the continent, may announce the gospel with renewed vigor and enthusiasm.
So you are listening to Francis Correa on the Jesuit Institute Hour. And now we're going to be talking to Dr. Maria Fram Amp of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Johannesburg. She's also an Anglican priest, and her particular area of specialization and interest that she's written a great deal about is in Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, and especially in women in Pentecostal charismatic churches in South Africa, and what impact faith and life has had on the lives of these women. So good morning, Maria, and welcome. Hi, Francis, and and hello to the listeners. Hi. So I thought it would be really helpful just for you to begin by saying a little bit about why you chose to do this kind of study. I know that was a long time ago, but uh, this, you did really make this your field in a, in a particular way. And I, I wondered if you would like to just say a little bit about why you were first drawn to this, and then we'll talk a bit about what your, your findings were. So I started this work 10 years ago, and it's still ongoing. And I was really interested in what was happening amongst young black professional women in South Africa. How were they coping in the workplace, being the first generation, really, of young black women who were becoming CEOs, managers of banks, um, HR managers, etc. And I was also very interested in the rise of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. And why was this type of Christianity attracting so many people? Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that I found was that this type of um, Pentecostal charismatic Christianity 10 years ago in South Africa was very much about equipping people to become leaders in the world of work. So many of these churches, like His People, Great Bible Church, Rivers of Joy, they were all um, churches that were saying Christians need to become um, people of note people of leadership in the areas in which they are. And so these churches offer lots of workshops, conferences on leadership, on how to run your own business. And what a lot of the young women were saying to me was that they found the sermons, which really dealt with everyday problems that people face in the place of work, and inspiring. And then all the other workshops that they ran help them to do things like ask for a raise, budget their money, buy a new car, what is involved in that process. And for people who were first generation um, in their families to go to university, and very often the first generation in their families to actually have a white-collar job and be earning enough to need to make decisions about buying a house, buying a car, this kind of support that the churches gave was incredibly valuable and important to them. But um, what we've seen in the last 10 years in South Africa is a shift or a change in um, Pentecostal charismatic churches. So we still have those that are supporting people and encouraging them to work hard and become leaders and to become successful. But we've also begun to see a new trend of pastors who focus on miracles. Right, yeah. Um, and they, we know all about the um, pastors who are telling people they've got to eat snakes and grass and drink petrol, and all of this is the kind of focus on God of miracles because actually to get a job is such a miraculous thing that people are prepared to go to any length to try and get a job, even if it's a job as a bricklayer. 
So something has really changed in the economy. There's what, you, what you're essentially yeah. saying is that, that from, from 10 years ago and earlier, where there was, there was more possibility for people getting jobs, more possibility for people coming out of university, finding work, now we are, we are dealing with a very different scenario where you know, we have this vast sense of unemployed youth and not just unemployed youth, the unemployed people, but that there is perhaps a sense of despair um, that's fueling a sense that only the miraculous can intercede to to make ordinary life possible. Yeah, exactly. And it's a type of Pentecostalism that um, has been around in Central and really much of Sub-Saharan Africa, but mm-hmm. wasn't as predominant in South Africa. Because mm-hmm. in South Africa, African independent churches, churches like um, the Shemba Church, the ZCC, those were the kind of places that were dealing with these fantastical miracles. Right. Um, but now we are beginning to experience the same sort of thing in Pentecostal charismatic churches, and um, this kind of focus on the miraculous. Um, you will find a hundred grand note randomly dropped on the street. Um, you will miraculously get a job when you know two thousand other people are applying for the same job, um, and so it is very closely related to our economy, but also a sense of despair that things in South Africa are just not moving forward mm-hmm. and something miraculous is needed. Mm. Another thing that we've begun to see in the last five years is how much Zuma uses the discourse of Christianity to support his own political position. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing um, particularly Pentecostal charismatic type churches engaging with uh, municipal leaders um, and other people engaged in the broader political machine of South Africa and encouraging them to come and to preach at their churches. And so we have Mahwing um, Mahwing, who's a pastor in one of these churches, and the leader of the DA is also a pastor in one of these churches. And so politics and Pentecostalism are becoming quite closely related to one another in South Africa at the moment. And I mean, I I know that there's been a lot of talk about how closely Zuma is tied to Rima, and I'm struck that this morning, right as we are talking, Gugu Zulu's funeral is happening at Rima Bible Church in Johannesburg, that there there does seem to be, there is is a, a real sense of attracting significant names to some of those churches and there being an alliance. I'm not sure that I completely understand. I mean, you, you kind of you're talking about some of that alliance, but could you spell it out a little bit more for us? Because I'm not sure I quite get it myself. Okay, so um, I think from my research, what happened is that Pentecostal charismatic churches, so churches that say you need to be, um, you need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and um, that through the Holy Spirit. You are given gifts of the Spirit, and very often being able to speak in tongues, um, that you need to pray for every aspect of your life, and you need to see that everything you do is part of God's mission for you. Mm-hmm. These are just some of the basic tenets of this type of Christianity. Mm. Um, that type of Christianity was very attractive to the emerging black middle class that we began to see in the 1990s. At the same time in the 1990s, the South African Council of Churches became completely powerless 
in South Africa's political arena. In 2007, when Zuma was starting to campaign to become president, he set up a new um, interstate, as it was then called, organization headed by Ray McCauley. And it's that organization that's really taken over the place of the South African Council of Churches, or rather that has now got the influence um, in Parliament and with the President that the South African Council of Churches once used to have. So that's part of why we are seeing this alignment. The other thing is that the people who were young people in the early 1990s and were attracted to this type of Pentecostalism and benefited from the leadership skills, the lifestyle, and teaching, the work-hard ethic, are now people that have become successful in what they are doing and are now rising up into successful positions. And so we are beginning to see much of what these churches actually wanted to do. They wanted to get their members into positions of authority and leadership in the country. Um, so I think that you know, there are multiple prongs to why we are seeing this Um, alliance and this influence of this type of Christianity in the political arena at the moment. It's really striking to me that when you were talking about this, I was kind of thinking about how some of the mainline churches, Catholicism, Anglicanism, um, Methodism, were very much kind of on board around helping people to become conscientized around apartheid during the era of apartheid, but then when 94 happened, there was a real sense that a lot of those structures collapsed um, or dwindled. And there, there was a, a, a real sense, I know, in our own church of, of maybe becoming a little bit more in, inward-focused, inward-gazing. And that they're, they're, I'm struck that it's at that moment that, that the Pentecostal churches were really pouring energy into helping people really to make that transition into what the new South Africa was about. Um, yeah, when, when these churches have actually been very quiet under apartheid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they were very, they were non-involved. They often criticized for um, not having fought the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and it's exactly that. And that's what fascinated me and why I began this study, because we're really beginning to see a very different type of Christianity um, move into the public space. Mm. And, you know, we're continuing to now see that. One of the other things that also happened in 1994 was, at least in the Anglican Church, many people who had religious vocations actually in many ways had political vocations. Mm. And one of the only places where black people could meet en masse were in the church space. And so the church space was very much a political space, and after 94, many of those priests or people who were very involved in the church moved into politics full-time. And so we lost those people and that voice um, from the church in the way that we had had before 94. Mm. And I think we must keep that in mind as well, um, that there was this transition of people into politics and they were now going to create the political structure that everybody had wanted. And as you say, we didn't really look at helping people transition into this new way of being that was opened up. 
I'd want to just pick up another kind of element of of your writing that I found very interesting um, that was just in such stark contrast to my experience in the mainstream churches, and that is your writing about how feminism played out very differently in the Pentecostal churches as opposed to how it's played out in mainstream churches. Um, you know, yeah, kind that's of, really interesting. So in pretty much every single Pentecostal church, and at the moment I'm doing a research study where we're looking at 100 Pentecostal churches in the Johannesburg area. Wow. And we've nearly finished collecting the data. And we ask, can a woman be the head pastor? And in 99% of the churches, women can't be head pastors. Mm. They may be pastors, and very often the head pastor's wife is also a pastor, and they are considered a team. But in this type of Christianity, it is the roles of gender are very, very clearly defined. And one of the most interesting things that I've noticed over the last 10 years is how much time and space these churches give to men's workshops and women's workshops or conferences. Mm. And at least once a year, they will run some sort of men's thing or women's thing. And it is a very clear divide that men and women are different, that different things are expected from men and from women. The men are expected to be head of the household, and with that comes the responsibility of providing for the household, of working hard, of ensuring that they do well at work in order to provide for the family. Women are encouraged to work in the world of work, but the ideal is that once they get children, they should their primary focus on raising their children. Now, while this is an ideal, about 73% of the women that I've interviewed are not financially able to be stay-at-home mom. But it's still interesting that their ideal is to be a stay-at-home mom, mm. not to be a big career woman. And so what many of these women are doing is they are trading off the idea that the husband is head of the family um, with the idea that they are able to stay at home and that if they are submissive to their husbands, their husbands will remain. So for many of the women that I interviewed, they came from single-parent households where they often didn't know their fathers or had very little contact with their fathers. Mm -hmm. And their big ideal is the nuclear family. If you could have a husband who provided for you, then they were quite happy to cook and be submissive and, you know, do whatever this husband wanted to some extent, um, so long as the man would remain and provide for them and their children. And, and that was... So very that, different to the feminist idea where, you know, women should have autonomy, should be able to go out and work, should have it all. Mm -hmm. um, they're saying, no, that's not what they want. They want this ideal of a man who will provide and that they don't have to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and juggle children and the job and everything else. Mm. So, And I'm very struck that that word submissive is clearly used in the narrative, that that, that, no. that's, that word is an okay word to use. I mean, I... Yeah. I, I, I'm, yeah, I was, we, in many of the mainline churches, very influenced by feminism, just book at. Mm, I mean, and it's, it's true in um, America, and there was a very interesting study done at the beginning of 2000 
um, looking at more fundamental forms of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And in all three, they found that women were attracted to these types of religions because actually being a full-time career woman, being a loving wife, being a mother, being and doing all these things is almost impossible because men are not actually taking up 50% of the care work at home. It's all basically now on women. And they're saying that actually feminism has got us into a place where we are worse off because now we not only have to run the household, look after the children and be there for our husbands, but we have to do this and we have to work. Mm-hmm. And so we would rather go back to these more traditional roles that very often are about being submissive, but it means that we can actually um, breathe. We, we are not expected to be superwomen. That's kind of an anti-superwoman narrative yeah. in, a, in a very yeah. strong sense. Yeah. Wow, that's um, and very in the South African context, the, amongst particularly black women, there is not an ideal of going out and working uh, in the same way that there was in white communities. Because many of these young women, their mothers did work. They got up at half past four in the morning, they took three taxis, they got to work, they cleaned somebody's house or they were a receptionist or whatever job it was that they had in the city and then they came back home or these young women actually lived with their grandparents and only saw their mothers when they came home at Christmas once a year. So their idea of a working woman is somebody who has to go to great lengths, make huge personal sacrifices and they're saying, well, that's not really what I want. I'd rather just be submissive. If I work, I want a job that's not so demanding. Mm. And ideally, I want a nuclear family where I can stay at home and take care of my children. Mm. So so this idea of the nuclear family is is such an important concept because it's not what most people in South Africa had before 94. Mm. They had families that were dispersed, that didn't all live together in one home. Mm. Um, and so this idea of a nuclear family is, is very attractive. And, and I think there's something even in that of, of that's still the reality now. I mean, I, mm. I saw a stat very recently about how more than 60% of South African children do not live with their father. Many of them may yeah. not know who that father is or, or may yeah. have very infrequent contact. So it's still a reality for South African children, that they're not growing up mm. in nuclear families. So yeah. there's a real... Um, there was a very interesting um, book on uh, church history that came out a number of years ago, and um, one of the things that the author was saying was that the um, rectory, the Anglican Methodist rectory or man, of the um, 19th century was what kind of epitomized the idea of the nuclear family in Europe. And I'm arguing that we're seeing the same thing in Pentecostal churches now. Head pastors, their wives and their children, which are always inevitably this nuclear family, are now the kind of idealized form of nuclear family that is currently um, being played out in South Africa. And these churches place a lot of emphasis on what it means to be a good father. Um, And they're very much aware of the fact that many of the men that are part of the congregation did not have um, male role models or had very negative 
male role models. And so they're trying to, what they call, raise up a new generation of fathers. Wow. That is, yeah. Yeah, that is I mean, that is, that is good work. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, while there's, one can make much criticism to the fantastical nature in some of these churches, and um, some churches that, like the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, uh, expect people to give very um, large sums of money mm-hmm. um, to the churches as a way to pray against the work of the devil. Um, many of these churches also do a lot of good in the kind of um, social skills that they develop in their communities. And the kind of re-establishing of a basic social cohesion in a society where that's been fragmented for generations. Yes, exactly. And that's a big part of their um, focus. Okay. Maria, this has been very enlightening, very interesting. I could carry on chatting to you for the next hour, but unfortunately our time is basically almost up. If there's any last thing you want to say um, that you think is a burning thing that listeners might want to hear about Pentecostal charismatic churches in South Africa? I actually want to say something more towards our traditional churches, Mm -hmm. and that is um, how much are we doing? Uh, I know within my own tradition, we don't really preach very much on what it means to be a nuclear family. Um, what it means to deal with your money. And I wonder if what we could learn from this is how do we help our congregation um, to deal with the everyday challenges of life in a Christian way. Mm, Excellent challenge. Thank you very much. Okay. God bless, and thank you for the call. Thank you, Maria. Bye. Bye. So we've been listening to Dr. Maria from ARP, who is at the Religious Studies Department in, at the University of Johannesburg. She's also an Anglican priest um, and practicing and worshipping at St. Francis in Parkview. And we are very grateful to have had her on the show. Exodus. Hijackings. Theft. These are but a few dangers we face as motorists. Join us at St. Albert's Fosloras, the Church of Mercy in the Near East Rand, on the 31st of July 2016, as we invoke God's blessings on our cars and vehicles through the intercession of St. Raphael the Archangel and St. Christopher, patron of motorists. Mass will begin at 8 a.m., followed by individual blessing of all vehicles present. People of all and no faith are welcome. For my father's house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. On the 31st of July 2016 at 8 o'clock in the morning at St. Albert's Fosloras, 1090 Mkhutlani Street, the Church of Mercy in the East Rand.
So after listening to Maria from AMP there, just talking to us about some of what was going on in Pentecostal charismatic churches, what was striking me was actually the need for us as Catholics to return to some of our own church teachings around the family, to return to some of the insights that the church offers, ways of thinking. I was really struck as she was talking that in Amoris Laetitia, um, Pope Francis talks about not being subject um, of, about women not being submissive actually but about really presenting this idea of, of equality which is quite interesting to me that you know we've got two very different narratives going on in these different churches although obviously there have been times in Catholicism where women have been asked to be more submissive but that that has shifted in the last century and in the Pope's not only Pope Francis but also Blessed St. Pope John Paul II talks about the role of woman quite a lot. And I presume for me there's a real challenge here to us as Christians, as Catholics, about going back to our own church teaching, about going back and thinking about our role as parents, our role as spouses, our role as lovers, our role in relationship, really thinking about, well, what does God ask of me in these roles? You know, how does God look at me? And I think that's quite a helpful, if you like, exercise to end with now. I'd like you just to think about your primary relationship roles as we come to the end of today. You know, are you a a mother or a father, a husband, a wife? Are you involved in a relationship, maybe not married, but, but in a loving relationship with someone? And just for a moment to imagine God gazing at you in the context of that relationship. And how does God look at you in that relationship? And what would God's desires be for you and of you? What does God ask of you that you may more fully be Christ to those that you love? And on that note... We say thank you to Kenny for managing the sound desk this after this morning and thank you to the listeners for listening to us and we look forward to hearing from you again next week. Go and be blessed. Amen.
Veritas. Truth. The voyage of discovery lies not in finding new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Truth simply is. My name is Mike Mahoney, and I'm inviting you to join me every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock for one hour as together we experience what it means to be living the Scriptures. Look forward to having you join me. God bless you. Are your insurance needs covered? Knight's Insurance Brokers has been assisting the Catholic Church since 1987, offering advice, insurance, health and service. To learn more about our variety of affordable insurance products and benefits, from life to car and funeral cover, contact us on 011-452-9135 or visit www.knightsinsurance.co.za. Knights Insurance Brokers, the leading Catholic insurance brokerage in Southern Africa. Accidents. Hijackings. Theft. These are but a few dangers we face as motorists. Join us at St. Albert's Fosloras, the Church of Mercy in the Near East Rand, on the 31st of July 2016, as we invoke God's blessings on our cars and vehicles through the intercession of St. Raphael the Archangel and St. Christopher, patron of motorists. Mass will begin at 8 a.m., followed by individual blessing of all vehicles present. People of all and no faith are welcome, for my Father's house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. On the 31st of July, 2016, at 8 o'clock in the morning, at St. Albert's, Fosloras, 1090 Mkhutlane Street, the Church of Mercy in the Israel. 